The theme for the evening talk is the significance of receptivity. During the day that we have been here together, we have touched upon the question of I and and essentially have said that I doesn't arise by itself, it doesn't have its own um, independent self-existence, it arises in connection and in contact with features of our life and the world of body and feelings and perceptions and thoughts and consciousness and the range of experiences, shallow and deep, I arises in the context of all of that and doesn't exist separate from it, it doesn't exist outside of it. And it was said in the talk yesterday evening that the eye itself in its arising with body, feelings, heart, mind, so forth, the strength of it the substantiality of it also varies quite considerably and therefore the sense of me sometimes can seem quite strong and intense and very, very present at other times there is a a forgetfulness of the sense of me the sense of uh, I Uh, other times it can appear quite transparent and other times not even present at all not only of course in deep sleep or certain altered states of consciousness but sometimes there's a clear and pure awareness which simply says there is body there is breathing there are feelings there are thoughts arising and passing there is this state of of mind, there is this consciousness and it doesn't have the notion at times or the sense of I and me in it or of it even the sense of I doesn't have any permanent continuity to it sometimes strong and uh, heavy sometimes light sometimes transparent sometimes not present or whatever the tendency all too human of course is to keep giving ourselves a kind of view of sameness and continuity and endeavouring to bring as much uh, receptivity to acknowledging I arises like the day arises I arises along with multiple other things which arise and not making it so much the centre of existence when we intensify self when we inflate it when we build it up somehow or other we make ourself 
the centre of existence and we expect what's around us, what's happening, to somehow keep meeting with ourselves at the centre of existence. And the world of self then becomes influenced and affected terribly, terribly easy by what's going on around us. And we find ourselves living in what uh, Buddhists call the, uh, if I can remember them, the eight worldly conditions. Uh, <laughs> I say I've got to remember them now I've said it. Um, <laughs> um, and they're polar opposites. So two is uh, pleasure and pain. As I spoke about pleasure, this needing, pursuing of sensation through lack of fulfilment. Pleasure and pain, two. And two others are praise and blame. How we can find ourselves constantly uh, in the pursuit of one and therefore discomfort and uh, reaction or worry or whatever about uh, uh, blame and we forget that in human interaction praise and blame are features of human life and there never has been any exception to that that there's not a human being who's walked on this earth who hasn't received either praise or blame and or both actually I didn't quite say that clearly enough that all human beings have received praise and blame and no human being has had one without t'other <laughs> and yet we have a bias that can be leaning one way and want one and somehow imagine that we don't get or won't have or shouldn't or don't deserve the other they go together in this world other area two, which is a matter of eight worldly conditions which affect uh, our life and that is gain and loss and again mind's tendency can be to be all on one side all pleasure all praise and all gain and somehow not want to have to deal with pain blame and loss yet in the nature of world of interaction we have with each other etc we keep getting exposed to all of this and now comes a difficult point because I'm desperately trying to remember <laughs> what the last last two were so oddly enough I've just been writing about it so, are there any Buddhists in this hall? <laughs> ah, thank you. Oh, very good, Billy. Thank you. Well, great relief to hear that. I, I was in serious danger of um, being blamed for forgetfulness or something. <laughs> oh, you got it from me? Yes, right. oh, so sweet. <laughs> so, to others is success and failure 
and here we live, find ourselves living uh, in this world. We have our interests and we have our commitments and our dedications. And again, if there's an inflated or exaggerated emphasis in one area of success and doing things right and doing them successfully, but it's, it has an exaggeration to it, it will mean and it will lead to uh, dependency on the success, or there will be kind of failure or neglect in other areas. And this is why we speak so much of awareness, of a choiceless awareness, of a comprehensive awareness, of a, an awareness which really attends to all of these things, so that we're very, very clear that being human and living in this world is one which exposes us to pleasure and pain, exposes us to praise and blame, to gain and loss, to the experiences of success and failure, things working out, things not working out, if we put it in a slightly different language. And to imagine that somehow our life can veer or steer away from uh, any of, uh, of that is, of course, to deceive uh, ourselves. In the flow of each of those pairings of worldly, worldly conditions, it's certainly worthwhile bearing in mind and bringing attention to how steady am I, whoever the I is, how steady is oneself in relationship and in contact and connection with any of those. And sometimes we look at those pairings and we sense and know that perhaps in all of them equally or in a couple of them or, or one pairing or whatever that there is particularly a kind of vulnerability which is there, uh, an inflation of uh, an obsession about, an addiction to, whatever it, it, it might be, and therefore as a matter of uh, respect to ourselves and probably others uh, as well, those four pairings deserve our attention because when you and I think of things and situations in life which matter to us in everyday life, the probability is that one of those pairings will be involved. You think of things which matter to you and matter to me, that those pairings, one pair of them or more, will be involved. And therefore, finding and asking ourselves, well, what is the wisdom in those areas? Because if we find wisdom in those areas, we acknowledge them, we're not denying them, and that wisdom itself is freeing and, and liberating. And, and, it's in, and I think noticeable, and some have this experience as well in one of the one-to-ones earlier today, uh, speaking about this, that when the old mind is at work, it will tend to think in terribly conditioned ways about any one of those areas. The way of the thinking will be typical of the way that we thought 
last week, last month, last year, or whatever. And there might just be a little bit of variation in the thinking to keep us kind of believing that we're really working on dealing with blame, really working with handling this loss, or this uh, failure in this enterprise that we started, or whatever it might, might be. But sometimes one needs to <coughs> almost ask oneself, I think sometimes the first question is, in various ways that it might be expressed, am I really committed and motivated to the resolution of the problem? of the issue, of what matters. Am I really committed to it? Because the thinking, when there is something that we are working with and trying to resolve in life, the thinking itself can be deceptive. Simply because we're thinking about it, there is no indicator that we're actually interested in resolving. It only indicates that we're thinking about it. And sometimes we actually haven't made up our mind that we really want a clarification, a resolution, a change, a different attitude, a new way of looking, or whatever. That really isn't clear to us. And so this deception, this Buddha called moha, it's a, a delusion of the eye. He says a delusion of the eye. Is that by thinking about, and as it were, making some noises in our mind to change things doesn't mean anything. And therefore it can fuel the issue. Make the problem grow bigger and bigger. So sometimes the first step is to ask ourselves very, very honestly and openly, hey, am I really honestly as far as and as deep and as, as well as I know myself committed to committed to acceptance of the situation committed to the resolution of it committed to the transformation of it committed to the understanding of it and sometimes again various forms of language with the in inquiry in these things is kind of along the lines is what is a wise way to handle this situation what is a wise way to handle this situation. What, is, what, what would it be to really bring wisdom to this situation? One uh, 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 friend uh, of, of mine kind of um, personalised it because he, he, he's a, a psychiatrist, actually. And he said the way that he would do it would be he would say to himself um, things like, um, um, how, would the, how would Mother Teresa handle this? <laughs> or, uh, she's not always the best model for everybody, I know. And, um, <laughs> and, or how would the Dalai Lama handle this? Or Mahatma Gandhi, or, um, or Buddha, or, or, or someone that one has some love and uh, respect for their wisdom, or whatever. So sometimes it's as though we've got to make a step in some way or other out of the conventions of our thought to looking in fresh ways and that, as I say, that might be the necessity to stimulate a different kind of question. 
which challenges us to look at uh, and find what is skillful. Even when at times we make that shift and, and we say, I'm, yes, I know in my heart of hearts I am genuinely committed to handling the particular situation skillfully. I know that I'm clear about that. And then the follow-up, well, what is it to handle it skillfully? Then one says, well, I'm not sure. And sometimes in the uh, uh, New Age brothers and sisters or whatever, they, they come out with this wonderful one-liner quite frequently, oh, the truth is within you. Well, for some, if it is, it's pretty deeply buried. <laughs> And it seems like all the meditations in the world is not actually digging it up. So at times I think we have to forget the uh, the truth is uh, within us. Uh, uh, there, if it's stark, staring, obvious that it it's not being expressed very well, if it is. And so sometimes. We're, we may find the wisdom, which is what truth is all about, we may find it elsewhere. Sometimes we need that humility. Sometimes we, we, we don't know how to handle situations well and skillfully. We do struggle, we do find it hard. And there are resources, friends and professionals and teachings and practice, etc., which gives us and touches us and brings reminders uh, to us of the ways to work well, wisely and skillfully with life. And that is a primary, major focus. And as the Buddha said when he was uh, under the, the uh, uh, tree when he was dying in Kushinagara, and in the very uh, last night of his life, uh, someone I uh, had a question uh, for him and his uh, friend and attendant, Ananda, said that uh, Gautama Siddhartha was dying from some kind of food poisoning or whatever it was, and let him, let him rest, let him be in peace. And Buddha overheard this and said, no, no, let, 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 him, let him come, let him, let him ask. So, the last question that he uh, received was, he was asked, how do we know where we can find the truth? Who, who has the truth? Who, who, who is truly wise? Etc. And the man had in mind, you know, the, the guru, the leader, the particular in, individual. And the Buddha's final words were bring awareness to all the activities of body, of feeling, of states and mind, and to the Dharma of life. Bring awareness to body and feeling, to states of mind and the Dharma of life, and with that find one's liberation. 
Sometimes we, we want the kind of embodiment of truth to be found, as it were, in one individual, like that. But more importantly, when we're dealing with issues of life, yes, if we can find the truth which is freeing and insightful for us from within, marvellous. Hopefully, if not, we have the humility and the receptivity to take steps to see what really is nourishing, what really touches us, what, what really makes uh, that kind of difference which enlivens our whole uh, existence. And teachings and practices and all that keeps pointing to that while maintaining that receptivity and that respect for the dynamics of bodies and feeling, of states of mind and uh, uh, the Dharma, the, the, the teachings of liberation. In receptivity, there is receptivity to the particular. Particular place, particular person, particular environment or whatever. And in that uh, receptivity and connection that takes place, we feel this, that, she, he, we, whatever, touches us. So the receptivity, as it were, is coming from the world that we live in, to our eyes, ears, nose, etc. So we feel the receptivity, and you and I find ourselves in places in this world which we are receptive to in an appreciative way. And we can feel the heightening of our consciousness. We can feel the touch, the sweetness of that, the contact of that, the warmth and connection. All, as we say, is a receptivity to the world that we live in. And we know, as I say, people and places, time and spaces, that does occur to us. And it's our right, it's a human right, to have chance and opportunity to be in receptive situations, uh, which help us, for those who have to work in more difficult situations in life, to gain the renewal, to work in places where there's less receptivity and uh, more tension or pressure. Taking the receptivity, it means the consciousness is not overladen or burdened with problems or weight or images or heavy states of mind and so there's a sense of just being there's a receptivity a sense of just being and in that sense of just being there's a certain kind of spaciousness that goes with it in that sense the question of who am I actually is felt to be less significant. There is a kind of point in the inner journey where the question of who am I, which can seem so primary and so fundamental, seems rather secondary to the receptivity. And so when thinking of who am I in the conventional sense, we might say, um, 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 I am a person, I am a man, I am a woman, I have these roles, I have these uh, activities, I have this kind of personality, I, I do this and I do that, etc., etc. 
and I have these feelings, and I have these various experiences, and so forth. And it's though that as we become more receptive, grounded in the receptivity, the question of who am I seems of secondary importance. It doesn't seem to matter that I weigh this amount and I feel like this and I do that and, uh, and I appear like this and I have this kind of personality, etc. It seems all rather extra, rather external. So the who am I knowing about ourselves matters and we can learn a great deal about ourselves but there is a fading away of the importance of who am I because the receptivity is, to, is around and about that which is not of I and so the I which matters becomes the I which doesn't matter and it's not because we're rejecting I or negative about it or trying to destroy it or, or whatever but there's a receptivity which has got nothing to do with my personal life. Nothing to do with my personal storyline in terms of what I did in the past or what I'm doing in the present or what I will or might do in the future. So my whole world of my personality and my activities and my place in time what I was, what I am, and what I will be, all seems rather uh, peripheral. All seems rather something other. And the sense that something which is of this receptivity actually is something not of I. And thus there can be a kind of fading of the importance of I, a heightening of uh, receptivity. Then one says, in this receptivity, but then what? Then what? And some of you have said, oh, during the days here, both uh, indoors and uh, outdoors, in various ways there's been uh, a receptivity. Does one just abide in that receptivity? Is it, as some of the sages have said and, and have described in their own experience, is there a kind of receptivity, a kind of abiding in the unknown, not knowing what will come through that unknown, and trusting in the validity of it, trusting in the validity of just abiding in this unknown? Of course, and I've referred to this in here previously, sometimes in the abiding in the unknown, it brings out what's already known and needs to be attended to and addressed. And to some degree, the inquiry periods that we have had, the meditations, the guided meditations with Yvonne and numerous other situations, all have contributed to a receptivity and that time, as we know, certain areas of our life have stood out and that receptivity is telling us clearly this needs attending to. Sometimes it's around 
those eight worldly conditions that I referred to a few minutes ago. Sometimes it's about other matters. Sometimes mind is calm and steady, sense of the world of the eye, body, feelings, heart, etc., is all steady. There is an abiding in the in that unknown and receptive awareness and nothing is coming out of the mind that really needs attending to. No problems to resolve, no issues to face, no major decisions to have to be engaged in. And so the question might arise in that unknown, therefore, do I just stay receptive as long as I possibly can in this unknown to see if something comes which is not of the mind, meaning not of the known, not of the conditioning, not of the personal, not of my history, not of my storyline, therefore not of self. Is there in the receptivity the potential for something to come through which is not of self, in the way we've been defining self over the days? And one has to say that again, yes. Absolutely, yes, clearly. Of course, in the receptivity and in the abiding in the known, the mind can kind of creep in through the back door and be looking for something to happen, which will be enlightening, because that's the buzzword, transforming, bring about incredible realizations, and the mind is beginning to creep in. All right, I want it. And as the force of the desire increases for something of which one doesn't really know uh, what, to a corresponding degree, the receptivity starts going down, the desire and the wanting begins to grow up and the frustration and disappointment uh, comes in and one goes to bed. (laughs) (laughs) So there's an expansiveness and a receptivity there. Making allowances for movement of mind in its wanting uh, form that, uh, that can take place. But sometimes, and it has been mentioned here, it could be like one is just in a kind of hopefully patient, waiting, receptive mode because there's nothing more that one can do. And that might be you know, a very genuine acknowledge, uh, acknowledgement. If I try to do something, it's just more effort, another act of the will, uh, a deliberate movement of the self, and begins to create a distortion. I want something, begins to create an imbalance again. So one comes back to the receptivity there, and again, does one just abide with the receptivity? Again, one must look at one's own experience through all, all of this, and in the looking at the experience through all of that, sometimes more appropriate and wise and skillful, because everything is to point to liberation, 
Everything's to point to liberation. That this patient and receptivity and its waiting mode can become something which one identifies with, wishes to get to, wishes to get back to in some cases, and becomes kind of the end of the journey as far as, far as the self can go. Do you understand what I mean? We, we, we say, I had this experience of just abiding in an expansive, choiceless awareness, a real sense of the unknown, the sense of being on the edge of something. I wasn't caught up in objects. I felt and sensed that. I abided in that. It was an extraordinary sense. It was like pregnant for something to uh, happen. Then it faded, energy faded, the mind started coming in with wanting, etc., etc. Now I'm trying to get back to it. I've had a taste of something, now I'm trying to get back to it. Because at that time I had little sense of I, me, my, my personal story, my history, myself. All of that seemed to have faded away. So the self wants to get back to the not-self in that expression of it. It might, with meditation, with awareness, spontaneously, in the nature, in silence, it might. But the same thing, as it does happen for the, those in contemplative life, can keep repeating itself. Movement through the issues of self, coming to the end of self, personal storyline, the sense of expansiveness, receptivity, a sense of the unknown, it's fading away, back to the self, and there's a kind of dance going on between the two. Maybe, while recognizing and acknowledging the wonder of this sense of the unknown of life, beautiful feeling and experience, sense of the un- unknown and not wishing to name or label or describe or put things into boxes. The sense of that, wonderful as it is, might be as important, certainly is as important, to look at the relationship of the unknown to the known. Remember, everything is for liberation. Everything is to find freedom. So rather than the sense of waiting for something to happen which will shift consciousness once and for all, and some will. Perhaps in that unknown, bringing an awareness to it, which inquires, not mentally, not uh, intellectually, not cerebrally, is there anything which inhibits freedom? Does anything inhibit liberation? Do the sights do it? Do the sounds do it? Do thoughts arising and passing in the mind do it? Do feelings which are pleasant, unpleasant, or in between uh, do it? Does posture do it? Does age do it? Or whatever. Does anything have the potency, the power, to stop liberation? Anything have the authority to stop it? In the field of the known, which is what happened through the five senses, and the thoughts, the rise in the mind, the pleasant, the unpleasant, 
or in between feelings that arise, arise out of the heart or whatever. So sometimes we, as it were, stand back, so to speak, from the world of objects for that receptivity. But perhaps in our standing back from them we are actually still giving them a little bit of authority. We're still saying, I need to go from the known, which is the object, internal or external, to the unknown. There's still a kind of whisper that the world is a bit of a problem, and if I can get away from the known and experience the unknown, then I have a bit more space from the object, and there'll be less of a problem, and I can be receptive to something better than the object. And maybe we're giving authority to objects which they don't have of themselves. Are they a problem? Sentient or insentient? Coming or going? Staying or not staying? Where is the problem? And that receptivity to that with uh, clear awareness, we might say, with realisation, with, with understanding, the significance of it is that the movement from the known to the unknown, from the object to the subject, from content to awareness and back again, which is a common story of uh, uh, those committed and have a great love of uh, meditation that in a way the freedom enables and allows the movement instead of oh I'm just up with these objects and, I, and uh, this that and the other I need to come to a greater sense of the unknown or a choiceless awareness or whatever it, it, it might be actually known and the unknown What's the difference? What's the difference? Where the sights and sounds and coming to us, where the thoughts are arising and passing, where the feelings are moving and flowing or whatever, so what? Does any of it have the authority, the power in and of itself to make a problem? When this understood just well and clearly, one can say, without blinking an eyelid, actually, there's no such thing as a real problem in life. There's no such thing as a real problem. And in that, there's the fusion and the marriage and the integration and the mutual absorption of the known with the unknown. They kind of confirm each other. The outcome, not always so easy to follow, I appreciate, the outcome of all of this is that in the mind, as well as in freedom, in the mind, quite content and okay at being at uh, everyday conventional level, you know, the usual chit-chat that uh, we as human beings uh, like and enjoy or indulge in or uh, uh, 
or uh, get tired of or whatever. All the usual things of all the daily daily tasks that we uh, have to do, brushing our teeth and going to uh, the toilet and the general um, um, maintenance of this thing from head to toe and all the other activities of uh, day-to-day life that it isn't seen as a distraction. It isn't seen as some kind of uh, problem. It's just what we do. And there is a freedom there and that freedom is just as great and significant in the meditation hall as it is in Safeway supermarket, which some would consider the other extreme. (laughs) Because the world is problematic. One has looked at it. One has looked the, the tiger in the eyes and sees that it's got no teeth. And one knows it. And therefore the problem has gone out. And one of the outcomes of the acknowledgement and the realisation of that is that one knows there are many, many people who don't realise that, who don't know that. And one's heart naturally reaches out because one knows the suffering of people who believe that there are real problems and, that, and it really is a really big problem. <laughs> and are in terrible confusion and pain over it. And, and has seen through that human mythology. Therefore, kindness and warmth and generosity, compassion, call it what we like, comes out naturally because of one feels concerned for people living in the myth. So, liberation, depth of meditation, the sweetness of the uh, unknown, the exploration of the eight worldly uh, conditions, not only contribute to the enlightenment of one, but also, and equally, point to the enlightenment of all. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with realisation. May all beings live a free life amid the conditions. So let's have our two or three minutes quiet period together.